Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we want to praise you for your love and grace and faithfulness to see us through to 2023. And Father, we want to acknowledge your lordship, your grace, your protection, your provision over our lives, even as we present ourselves before you this day in this hour of worship. And Father, even as we look to your word, we pray that it will be your spirit that speaks into our hearts and into our lives. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to the end of the year, we also come to the end of our sermon series on uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, Pastor Shen uh, provided us with a teaser preview of the Great Commission, which we will cover today as we conclude the book and summarize a little bit of what we have learned from the Gospel of Matthew. So last week, Pastor Shen covered how Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples. They worshipped him even though some of them doubted or hesitated. They didn't know quite sure what to make of the new reality. A new reality of the world in which one man was literally raised from the dead. Now, devout Jews at the time of Jesus, they expected that God will bring this present evil age to an end. It will be the end days, it will be the end time, and there will be judgment, and then there will be the resurrection of the dead. The righteous will be raised to life, the wicked will be raised to condemnation. But in Jesus, quite amazingly, what is supposed to happen only in the future has happened in their time, in the midst of the present time and age where God raised Jesus from the dead. And so it is as if God's future is now a present reality with the resurrection of Jesus. So this is God's new world, which the Bible calls new creation. Sin, sickness, and death that destroys life no longer has the final say. God would always now have the final say through the resurrection of the life, resurrection of life. And with the resurrection of Jesus, God shows that he is creating a new world even in the midst of the old one. And so there will be still sin and suffering in the present old world, but God's new world, his new creation, is already starting, is already growing with the death and resurrection of God's Son. And this is the kingdom of God that Jesus came to preach, to teach, and to build. But to enter and live into God's new world, the kingdom of God, we must repent, change our way of thinking, radically reorientate our lives to God because we're going to have to leave the old life behind. The old ways of success, ambitions, expectations must be discarded and left behind if we are to fully live in God's new world. You see, the old ways, the old way of thinking and living are not compatible with God's new world. Jesus taught that in his kingdom, the first will be last, the last first. Jesus said, whoever would seek to save his life will actually lose it, but whosoever 
loses his life for the sake of Jesus, for his name, for his sake, will gain life. And if God can raise the dead, then as we sang earlier, we can confidently give our lives up to Jesus, no matter what the cost or consequence. And people around the world today, Christians around the world today, live up to that ultimate cost of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no middle ground between the present old world of sin and the new world of God's kingdom. They are completely incompatible with one another. In fact, they are in opposition to one another. The world of sin and death wars constantly against the kingdom of God, a kingdom of abundant life and righteousness. And with the resurrection of Jesus, this new world is already a present reality. And Jesus' last great command before ascending to heaven to his disciples, which we uh, traditionally call the Great Commission, is to take this new kingdom reality, take this, this good news of this new kingdom into all nations. So in a, in a sense, quite amazingly, Jesus is entrusting the message of this kingdom to his disciples. Now, God works sovereignly in many ways, ways that we do not know of, in unseen ways. But one key crucial way that God works today is to work in and through his people called the church. And so the growth and expansion of God's kingdom is not going to be through the wisdom and strategies of men. It's not going to be through wars of conquest or tools of violence or coercion. It's going to be through sacrificial love, forgiveness, grace, showing the redemptive heart of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we call disciple-making, the building of new lives with the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And so our big uh, idea for today is disciple-making is the heart of our mission. So how can we as a church obey the Lord's great commission to grow and expand His kingdom through discipleship? Well, there are three areas that we want to look at today. First is stand with authority. Second is to strive for discipleship. And third is to strengthen the outreach. So first, stand with authority. The church has a mandate to carry out. Now, a mandate is the authority to carry out a work or to fulfill a mission. The extent of the authority will determine the limits of the mandate or mission. So you see in uh, you know, general elections where the incoming government, if they didn't have a strong mandate, right, the, the votes are very close, they don't have enough seats, or you know, it's just almost 50-50, then you say it's a weak mandate. The, the level of the authority may be limited. So the bigger the authority, the more powerful the mandate. In Matthew 20, 28, the risen Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. So how big is all heaven and earth? Very much covers everything, right? Jesus has authority to bring his kingdom to dominate all of heaven and on earth. There's no square inch, there's no single place or time where Jesus doesn't exert his authority as the everlasting king. So the mandate of the church 
is to bring the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, that means all people groups, under, so, under the sovereign authority of Christ. Now, without the authority of Christ, the church will have no business, no right to bring this gospel to the nations. There's no basis to speak to the other powers and the other kingdoms about this king, this righteous king who died for our sins and raised again on the third day. But we do have this authority to bring this word. Whenever you preach, share, show the values of this kingdom, you are making a proclamation, a declaration against the present kingdom of sin and death. How many of you know that uh, the present powers of sin and death are not going to take it well? And therefore, you would, you would expect persecution, opposition, and struggles as you live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a spiritual warfare because as you preach the kingdom and do the works of the kingdom, the kingdom actually overturns the dark powers of sin and death. As Ephesians uh, chapter 6 tells us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That is to say, we are not going against humans. We are wrestling against the powers, the principalities, meaning the spiritual powers of sin and death. So we as the church, we are entrusted with this mandate, this authority to represent Christ to the world. So what have we done with the authority that Jesus gives us? Now, there's a real danger that we can misuse or abuse authority. We all know that. But there's also an equal danger that we neglect to use the authority that God entrusts for us. If you recall the parable of the talents that Jesus spoke about, how one servant with the talents hid it all under the ground, dare not use it. So the church is not supposed to play it safe in that sense. Huh? So if we fail to use the authority that God has, that Christ has given the church, then we will fail to bring the gospel to the nations. We will lack this life-transforming discipleship in our church. If the church does not stand in a place of authority, then we will be weakened and discouraged by the struggles and opposition we will face. We will be distracted, we will be deceived by the sinful ways of the world. So if you are not, if our church is not moving against in opposition to the ways of this world, if you are not doing that, then eventually we will begin to compromise and adopt the ways of the world. Because there's no middle ground. You, you are in opposition or you're adopting the ways of the world. This is what uh, uh, Paul wrote to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And he goes on to say how people can be so infected and deceived by sin that they can have a form of godliness but denying is power. So if we don't really believe and live under God's authority, we will stop believing in the breakthroughs and life transformation 
that God can bring into our world. And once we stop believing the God of the breakthrough, the God of life transformation, we will uh, settle in for a life of outwardly religious experience or outwardly religious rituals without experiencing the power of the gospel to change and transform lives. And that is exactly what Satan wants the church to be because that kind of a church is not a threat to Satan. It's only outwardly religious. There's no power. So on the other hand, living under God's authority is the strongest place for the church. And so we must reclaim uh, this place of authority. In, the, uh, in, in our church camp earlier this year, I was uh, uh, looking at some of the kids who were playing uh, together with my son in the pool, you know, playing games, uh, boys, you know, fighting games, etc. And uh, one of the, the, the young uh, uh, boy uh, said, uh, while fighting and trying to um, beat the other team, oh, we must gain the high ground. We must go to the high ground, gain the high ground. And I, I, I said to myself, wow, these guys know the battlefield tactics, right? They, they probably some, you know, computer games. Because that's exactly right. When you, you go to battle, right? You get the high ground. You, you go for the strong place. You don't fight from a position of weakness. And for the church, the strong ground, the ground of victory is in Christ. It's standing in a place of authority that Christ gives us. You can stand in a place where you are outside God's authority. And then, then you're messing around with the spirits or the, the powers of sin, sickness, and death. You are, you are under the, 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 the kingdom of darkness. But the church is supposed to stand under the authority of Christ. That is your strong point. That is your stronghold. And so when you face the new year, as we face the new year, we must be at the place, our strongest point, the place of authority. But that means that we live in obedience to Christ by faith. With the place of authority, then we need not stand or we not, need not be subject to the powers of fear and anxiety. We are no longer a slave to fear or being captive by sin. So in this year, want to orientate our lives to make sure that we're standing in a place of authority. Second, we want to strive for discipleship. Uh, Disciple-making is the mission of the church. So the authority that we saw before, the authority that Christ gives to the church is to make disciples. And the church must be clear on this mandate. We saw earlier the church exercises authority to expand the kingdom to all nations. And the way we do this is by disciple-making. So the church must not lose this focus or attention. Whatever else we think the church should be doing, the church must not forget its overriding mission to make disciples. My wife, Leighton, and I, we uh, like to spend time with, uh, try our best to spend time bonding as a family with our son, Caleb. And so one of the ways we try to do this is through a family trip, a family holiday together. And um, no surprise, in a trip, uh, you always want to get a good photo. You want to capture the moment. You want to get a good, great photo shot. Uh, but I find that um, for me, I, I try, I must remind myself not to be too preoccupied about taking the photograph because 
yeah, the photos are great, right? They enhance the experience, they capture the moment. But I remind myself, not be too preoccupied uh, in trying to take that perfect shot, uh, because that I'm, you know, I, I may lose the, the moment of experiencing with my son, which is the main thing. Um, so, uh, even my son sometimes complains, right? We try to take a few shots, uh, you know, Caleb will say, ah, that's enough, you know. Uh, so, you know, you, you don't want to lose that moment. You want to enjoy that moment without having the phone camera intruding, right? Um, I'm sure many of you have experienced those, uh, uh, what do you call it, the 10-day uh, 8-CD tour somewhere in Europe, that kind of thing. Uh, they bus you around like cattle, right? From one city to one stop to the next, and you come to a stop, everybody rushes down to take the shot, and everybody rushes back to the bus. You don't even know what that place is about, right? It's, you know... You lose the moment, you lose, what, what's the you know, a meaning of that? So the church can uh, get bogged down, preoccupied with a lot of supporting activities to the extent that they overshadow the main thing, which is disciple-making. A disciple-making that flows from deep experience of worshipping God. And if disciple-making is the charge or mandate that our Lord Jesus gives to the church, then we will all have to give an account to the Lord how and to what extent we have carried out this mandate. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So discipleship, as Jesus describes it, has two critical components. One, baptism, and second, teaching all the commands of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the entry point where a person is initiated into the community of faith. We are baptized into something. For Christian baptism, we are fully baptized or fully immersed into the life of Christ, to receive that gift of salvation, that gift of righteousness by believing faith in Christ. But we have to realize that baptism involves death as well. As we go under the water, it signifies the dying of the old self, the old life, the old sin, all of the sin, the old beliefs, the old allegiances, the old values, the old ambitions, they are all put to death under the water. But what emerges from death is the new resurrected life with Christ. Although we still live at the present, we still live the physical body, the resurrection life is already present with us until the day where we will experience the full resurrection glory with immortal bodies. But the key to understand here is that baptism means dying to the old life, to the old identity, and having a new life, a new identity in Christ. So we must be quite clear if we share and teach about this, that coming into baptism means that the old life is no longer possible. It is put to death, but we will have a new life, a new identity that God will give us. And if baptism declares the start of a new life with God, then the second crucial component of discipleship is teaching obedience to all of Jesus, what all of what Jesus taught his disciples. 
So discipleship is actually, well, we shouldn't think of discipleship as running courses in a classroom setting or just about that, right? Nor should it be some form of an academic type of learning. Um, our knowledge of God must not be just theoretical because discipleship is supposed to be life-transforming. So if I tell you that um, um, theoretically I love my wife, what does that mean? Uh, if, if, a, if a man wants to propose to a woman and he says, um, in principle, I would like to buy her a diamond ring, what, what does that mean? What does that do? Now, foundational truths are important. So, you know, you, you want to learn systematically, you want to organize your learning. Uh, Pastor Shun Pastor uh, showed us previously how Matthew organizes his gospel into various parts. So, there is, you know, there, there is a part to, to kind of organize and make sure that we have an organized way to learn so that we can have the whole counsel of God's word. And so, if you kind of come to the part of the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter chapter 7, for example, that's the section on the Sermon on the Mount, where it contains this dense material of how Jesus taught what it means to live under God's kingdom, under God's rule, right? Loving and praying for our enemies and uh, turning away from anger and lust, having this genuine um, devotion to prayer, to, to, to fasting, to generosity, and, and trusting in God's provision, right? So all these teachings talk about the heart of kingdom living, that leads to abundant life and righteousness. So we, we want to make sure that we learn that well and we are sharing that, we are living it out, we are teaching that. So by being intentional and organized, we learn the whole counsel of God's word, all that Jesus commanded us. But our knowledge must not remain theoretical because if it remains theoretical, then our knowledge is without its full power. So if I tell you... Um, Theoretically, God is your healer. How does that help you? The living truth is God is your healer, period. If I try to encourage you, um, God can provide for your needs in principle. How does that help you? The reality is God is your provider. And I can only share and teach that God is our provider, if, if, only if I myself have experienced God as provider for my own needs or the needs of my family. And the, the first disciples witnessed firsthand and experienced firsthand how Jesus proclaimed the kingdom with life-transforming power. And then Jesus empowered his disciples to do the same. For example, we, we looked at previously Matthew um, 9, verse 35. We read that, you see, the disciples were accompanying Jesus, so they were seeing all of this, right? That Jesus, he went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. You see, Jesus didn't just teach something theoretical about the gospel, he demonstrated the practical power of the gospel to heal and transform lives for the kingdom. This is the overturning of the kingdom or the powers of sin and death. And he demonstrated that. We also previously covered in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus 
then gave this authority, his authority to his disciples to go into the towns of Israel to proclaim the message of the kingdom and to demonstrate the kingdom power to heal and transform lives as well. So it's not just Jesus. He gave his disciples the authority to do the works, to, to proclaim and do the works of the kingdom. And now we see today in Matthew chapter 28 that Jesus now gives his disciples a new level of authority, not just to Israel, but to bring this message of the gospel to all nations. And this is exactly what the early church did. In uh, for, um, Acts chapter 14, verse 3, we see that Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time in a particular area speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed, the Lord confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. In, uh, while, he, while Bishop Jaya was here last week, in one conversation, he said that um, one of the things that he found very uh, powerful is um, you know, having prayer after the service or after the, after the sermon um, for people to respond and for God to work. And he found in his experiences uh, is something very powerful. And so one key practical thing that we could do, we, we can do, is that whenever we teach or share the gospel, we must also call for a response to pray for what has been shared or taught so that God can move in the lives of those who we are sharing with those we are ministering to. For example, if you teach or share on forgiveness, then call for a time of praying to forgive others. If you share on God's faithful provision, then pray specifically for, that, for the needs of that person. If you are trying to encourage others that God is our healer, then pray for healing. I was also uh, recently reminded um, about the signs and, and wonders in the ministry of John Wesley himself, the founder of the Methodist Church. At one point, uh, Wesley wrote that he experienced or he saw on a daily basis miracles as he preached and taught the people in Bristol, a place in the UK. And it seems that uh, whenever uh, Wesley preached the gospel, he had an expectation that God will work miraculously in the lives of people who heard the message. There's one incident, in fact, that uh, Wesley and others were praying for a, um, I think it was a co-worker um, who had contracted a serious illness and he actually died. There was, the body was cold, there was no more pulse. Uh, but Wesley and, and his co-workers, those who were with him, prayed and the dead was raised. So we need to be reminded of our Methodist heritage of experiencing a miracle-working God as we faithfully preach the gospel, teach the word. This is a quote from Wesley uh, towards the end of his ministry who wrote in uh, 1786, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist. But I'm afraid lest they should exist only as a dead sect, uh, meaning a, um, he, he's afraid that the Methodists will just exist as a lifeless religious group, having the form of religion without the power. And this is undoubtedly will be the case unless 
they hold fast to both the doctrine, the spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And so this is, this is the heart of the Methodist movement of life-transforming discipleship as we preach and teach the transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we strengthen the outreach. Going is always going to be costly. Right? By, de- by definition, we have to leave something behind when we go. And Jesus commands us as disciples, Matthew 28 again, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Obeying Jesus' command to go to all nations, to all people groups, would require us to cross boundaries and barriers. Traditionally, we think of cross-cultural, cross-borders kind of missions, and this remains true. It remains critical today. But it also requires us, in obeying Jesus, it also requires us to cross over our comfort zones, our sense of convenience, even our sense of well-being. Sometimes we feel uncomfortable, awkward, to evangelize, so there's a barrier to cross. Or we feel that um, discipling or mentoring others will take too much time and effort, which is true, it'll take time and effort. And we feel we are unable to bring ourselves to do that. Sometimes the barriers are psychological, spiritual. I'm not comfortable with you know, sharing or mixing with people of a different race or background. Or um, you know, I can't forgive this wrong that has been done to me, so I can't reach out to this person. And for many of us, uh, myself included, it's also a sense that um, we are unable to give up control of our lives. Now, if we commit to obey the Lord in everything, then we, of course, lose control over the direction of our lives. Of course, that's the way we think. Recently, I was uh, listening to a well-known preacher online, and he was uh, sharing... Uh, how a message from a Catholic monk actually convicted him very, very greatly. And the monk's message is to pray for three things. Pray to desire not to be esteemed, not to be secure, and not to be in control. How many of us can actually truly submit ourselves to God and pray this way? Not to be esteemed, not to be secure, and not to be in control. It's basically the death of our own agendas, our, our ambitions, right? our social status, our sense of self-security. It's basically saying that you give up your right to insist on an independent choice outside of God's will. You surrender the, the uh, direction of your life completely to God. And this well-known uh, preacher and teacher confessed that it was the last two that really troubled him. Can he really desire not to be secure and not to be in control? Now, for him, not to be self-secure is still okay, right? Because our security is in the Lord. But he says that not to be in control is the hardest one for him. And he struggled. Do I really desire not to be in control? But he concludes this way. When God is in control, then it's grace. 
In other words, it's the grace of God that sustains us and directs us when we give Him control. And so to obey Jesus will really mean that we have to completely put our trust in Him for our security and to surrender our sense of control into His hands. Uh, one brother in Christ from our church community here recently shared with me uh, on his family experience as he and his wife uh, committed, previously committed to um, cross-border missions. And he shared along the same lines that to obey God, you really have to trust God and give up control. Uh, they were sent to a, a country where they faced tremendous um, difficulties, challenges, for a period of time, and then later on, the Lord brought them out and put them into another country where they really you know, started what they were thinking as their, their calling and mission work. And he, and he shared that it's only when you look back in hindsight that you begin to sense why and how God had directed them. So in other words, what he's saying is that you have to obey and go without fully understanding or knowing the big picture of how God is working, what he's going to do. So this brother puts it to me, he shared with me this way. It's only when you step out into the water that you will experience God's provision. It's only when we step out to do his work that, of course, God's power and provision for his work comes to play. If we are not doing that, then you know, then, then we're not op operating in the fullness of God's power and provision. God would give us a sense of insight and conviction for us to take the first step of obedience. But we have to put our trust in Him. Uh, one uh, Bible scholar, Ben Brillington, he put it this way, God will, God, God will give us enough he will show us enough to give us hope. But not every detail that we don't need faith. In other words, God will give us insight and guidance enough to give us hope. But we still need to have faith. Because we will not know the full details of what God is leading us into. But what if we choose not to obey? What if we don't take that step of faith? What if we don't obey what Jesus commands us to do, let's say through the, through the Great Commission? What's the definition of not obeying? Disobedience, right? Yeah, it's disobedience. And I want to say gently to myself and to us that the Holy Spirit will not honour or empower disobedience. Now, for us who put our faith in Christ, God loves us with an everlasting love. We are saved by grace. We are no longer under condemnation. And God is extremely patient and long-suffering with us to guide us, to wait for us, to wait for us to obey but the Holy Spirit will not empower or honor disobedience. 
This is non-negotiable in our life of faith. So individually, or as a church, we can have lots of activities, church programs. We attend church services. But if we are not obeying the commands of Jesus, not living according to His teachings, then we are in a state of disobedience. The church can have great facilities, programs, activities, but if we are neglecting the commands of Jesus to be discipled and to go and make disciples, we are neglecting our core mission. But when we take the step of obedience, when we live under Christ's authority and obey in faith, then the power of the Holy Spirit comes strongly. The Holy Spirit comes to empower our obedience and make us endure through the challenges ahead. And as we persevere in our obedience, Jesus promises this in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. God's power and provision comes when we take authority under Christ and obey in faith what he has commanded us to do. Because when we obey in faith, the authority and power of God's Spirit backs up our obedience. Every time you take a a step of obedience, no matter how hard, you step out in faith, the power and the provision of God backs you up in your step of obedience. Now, we are um, not made perfect overnight, that's for sure, right? And God knows that we are not able to obey everything perfectly. The Lord is a gracious and compassionate God. But His invitation for us today is to take the first step of faith. It is to turn our lives to Him and follow Jesus one step at a time. We might still stumble or sin or disobey willfully or unwillfully or unintentionally, but the Lord upholds us. He forgives us. He restores us when we come in repentance. But He sustains us on the right path so that by His grace and Spirit, we will keep on progressing in our life of faith and obedience. So, uh, in conclusion, I want to give us a moment here to consider the following commitment questions. I want to invite us to commit before the Lord's presence today. Those two questions, you take a moment. First question, will you commit to be discipled? And secondly, will you commit to disciple others? To commit to be discipled means surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never believed in Jesus, this is the point where you commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you are already a Christian, committing to be discipled is a lifelong call of the Lord. It is to grow in your faith and experience of God. It will mean that you know, God will bring other mature Christians into your life to encourage you, to pray over you, 
and for you to be accountable to other Christians. So discipleship is actually a shared life. It's life on life. We are allowing um, other matured Christians to encourage us, to pray for us, but also to rebuke us, to correct us in love if the Lord requires it. And we must, if you want to be disciple, you must be open to that. But if you sincerely commit to the Lord, God will honour your prayer. He will bring people into your life. The second question is, will you commit to disciple at least one other person in the coming year? Now, the Lord will likely bring you more, but would you commit to disciple at least one other person in the coming year, 2024? We are all on a journey of faith, so as we are discipled, God will also put us in a position to encourage and disciple, to disciple others. Sometimes it's just committing to pray for someone. I say it's just, but you know, prayer is, is so critical. But those of us who are more mature, God will call you to teach, to mentor others in faith. Uh, for small group leaders, I'm not sure whether you realize it, it or not, but you have signed up for this, right? If you're a small group leader, uh, you, you, you know, you're, you're already in this, so, yeah. Um, but for the rest of us as well. So I'm going to give us a moment to open your hearts before the Lord, and I'm going to conclude in prayer. But in the silence, open your heart to the Lord. I want to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes and spend this moment before the Lord. And with the heads bowed, I, I, I like to ask the first question. Will you commit to be discipled? And if the Lord has spoken to your heart and you want to make that commitment before the Lord, with the eyes closed, I, I, want, uh, I want to invite you to raise your hand so that I can see, I can see, I can pray for you and commit before the Lord. It, 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 it is a lifelong commitment. It's, you know, I'm not forcing you, but I'm inviting in God's presence. And thank you, I see a hand. Amen, I see the hand. Keep your hands up and your hearts open before the Lord because the Lord sees your sign of commitment to be discipled. Father, in this moment and we pray as we present ourselves to you that you will do a new work in our lives. Father, you see the hearts that are open right now, the hands that are raised up to commit to lifelong discipleship. And I pray, Father, that you will so pour out your spirit into the hearts that are open to you right now
that they know that as they commit to you, that every step of obedience, every step of, their, of faith that they are taking right now, that you will honour that. That you will send forth your spirit, your presence, your provision into every life this day that is open to you. Father, we pray that you will send people into their lives who will encourage them, who will build them up in the faith. That by your Spirit, you will lead them and transform their lives into a new path, into a new life. I pray now that even as they open their lives to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit will so fill them with your love and do a mighty work in their lives. That as they commit to you, they will experience the life-transforming power of the gospel at work in their lives and then through their lives to impact the lives around them. Okay, I want to ask the second question. Will you commit to disciple at least one person in the coming year? And if you are committed to do that, I want to pray for you. If you raise your hands, I want to see that and I want to pray for you. The Lord will uh, actually may more likely bring more to you. But if you're committed to at least one, I invite that with a heads bowed to make that commitment in God's presence because He sees your heart and your hand is just a symbol. It signifies what is in your heart. Praise God for the hands and we're going to all commit to the Lord even right now. Father, I praise you for my brothers and sisters in Christ whose hearts are open. They're committing themselves to you to do the work of the kingdom, to be a disciple maker. Father, we know how weak we are. We know in many ways we are very imperfect. We do not have the skills Many times we are not sure what to do. But Father, you see the heart. You see the step of faith. And I pray, Father, for those who have committed to disciple others, Father. Lord, you know that we can't do it in our own strength. But I pray by faith for the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to so fill your children this day who are taking this step of commitment, that, Father, as they commit, you will show them how to move. You will direct their path. Father, I pray for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit upon their lives. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will remove every barrier and every obstacle in their lives, even right now, in Jesus' name that they will be freed, they will be empowered to surrender everything to you. 
even as they surrender their sense of security, I pray that you will be their security. You will be their stronghold. Even as they surrender their self, their sense of self-control, their sense of control over their life to you, Father, I pray that they will sense your strong hands, that you yourself will direct their path, that you will be in control, that you will make the way straight, you will remove the mountains, you will remove the obstacle, that they will experience your breakthrough in their lives, even as they commit themselves to you this day. Father, we praise you. We praise you, Lord, for who you are to us. We praise you for the work that you're going to do in our lives, in the life of this church, as we face the new year. And Father, we commit once again those who have opened their hearts to you to be disciples. We pray, Father, that it will be truly a new life for them. And those who are committing themselves to you to disciple others, make their life a blessing to those around them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.